church body. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to be reading all of it. So if you want to follow along, that would be great. And in honor of God and his word, would you please rise with me? First Corinthians chapter nine. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews in order... To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I, ha I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to, win a, to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel and for those who have shared it and sought all sorts of ways to save other people and present it to them. Thank you now that we can still, 2,000 years later, have the same kind of heart and desire to pursue others. May the words that Josh speaks today 
uh, inspire us, move through us, empower us by the Holy Spirit to go out and uh, continue sharing the gospel to a world that so desperately needs you. Thank you that you've given us this opportunity to love you and serve you, and thank you that you've saved us. Uh, thank you for everything that you've given us, and we ask this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Good to see you. Um, you know what uh, just feels like the absolute worst thing? Uh, maybe you agree with me. Uh, it's, it's when somebody misunderstands you, right? Or they misrepresent you. Or they say things about you that just aren't true, but they think they're true, and so they tell their people about that. Have you ever had that happen to you before? Anybody? Great. Okay, four people. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's us four talk, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, right, but well, what happens? What do you do when that happens to you? You defend yourself, right? You give a defense, don't you? If somebody speaks something that's, that's not true of you, you want to give a defense. You want to defend yourself. That, that's exactly what we do. That's a pretty universal response to being misunderstood, or especially to be talked negatively about, if, if especially what they're saying is just not true. Now, in uh, chapter 9 here that Isaiah read for us, we see this very long and rigorous and detailed defense of Paul. Paul's defending himself, right? He's defending his title, his status as being an apostle, He's defending, you know, these, these motivations that they're questioning, what his motivations are, or they're questioning his lifestyle and why he lives a certain way, and so he gives a defense, just like many of you said you would do, right? Let me ask, why? Why does Paul defend himself? And, there, and the answer to that question is actually very foreign to us, because most of us probably want to defend ourselves, if we're being honest, when we're misrepresented because we want to protect our image, we want to protect our reputation, right? We, want to, we have this self-preservation sort of mode that, that kicks in. But Paul defends himself not because he's trying to maintain an image. There's something far more important to him than that, way more important than his reputation. He's defending himself because of the gospel. He defends himself because the gospel is at stake. His defense isn't about him. In verse 23, which you might want to underline that verse. It's kind of the key verse of this chapter, I think. It says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. You see, most of us, when we defend ourselves, uh, we defend ourselves for our own sake. We defend us for us. You defend you for you. I defend me for me. You see, something has to matter more to you than, than you if you're ever going to defend yourself for any other reason. If there's something more important to you than you, then you might actually defend yourself for different reasons. When, when something becomes more precious to you than you, the nature of defending yourself will radically change. And one of the big ideas or one of the big threads that we see in this passage is that the gospel makes you different. It makes you a very different person because of the title of this message. It most certainly will make you different. And so it's my hope this morning, honestly, by the sheer grace of God, that we would be people who leave this place and living this week, savoring and treasuring the gospel, because if we do, our passage shows us that it'll change you in three radical ways. And this will be on the back of your paper branch notes, or it'll be on the screen if you don't have those. We see in verses 1 through 18 that the gospel will give you open hands. In 19 through 23, we see that the gospel will give you a really big heart. And in 24 through 27, we see that the gospel will give you a glorious goal. 
Okay, so first, the gospel will give you open hands. And we see this in verses 1 through 18. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 here at first. And it says this. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. What's happening here? Well, if you read this, as Isaiah already did for us, uh, we're led on to understand that there are at least some people in this church that Paul's planted who are doubting and calling into question Paul's status as an apostle. They're not, they're not believing he's really an apostle. They're bringing it into question. And the argument that's laid out for us in verses 1 through 18 and the verses that following kind of lead us into these like two categories for why they're questioning him. Verses 1 through 18 show you that the reason they're questioning him is oddly enough because he's not accepting money from them for preaching the gospel. And that kind of, it's probably odd to us. Right? He's not taking their money for preaching the gospel. And in their mind, apostles get paid. Right? If you preach the gospel, if you're an apostle, you get paid. He's not taking money and he's working with, he's choosing to work with his hands, doing these menial jobs in order to support himself. And so they're like, maybe he's not an apostle then. They're questioning his apostleship. In the verses that follow, they're questioning his lifestyle, like why he behaves the way he does around different people. And so they're questioning his apostleship. So he defends his apostleship, and he refers to his conversion experience, first of all, on the road to Damascus. He says, well, I've seen Jesus. But just seeing Jesus didn't make you an apostle. A lot of people saw Jesus, and not everybody was an apostle. What he's doing is he's referring to when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and not only did he see Jesus, but Jesus commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to people who weren't Jewish. He says, I've seen Jesus, and his second statement here is, I've seen you, and look at you. You're the seal of my apostleship, right? You're the Gentiles, right? And you're here, you believe in Jesus. You're the seal of my apostleship. Just like if, if you're a baker, right? But you never bake anything, we would question your bakership, right? We wouldn't know if you're a baker, but if you bake good goods and we eat those baked goods, we'd go, that is the seal of your bakership, right? And so he looks at them as the product, the outcome of his work as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's like, look at you. I see you, right? You are my seal, right? Others can doubt, but you shouldn't. You just shouldn't doubt. And then in verses 4 through 18, he belabors this point. And the point, is, what's the point that he's making? His point is that it is actually his right, it's his right to be paid for preaching the gospel. I say he belabors the point because he piles up here example upon example to prove that it is his right. Let's just look at this. It says in verses four through six, if you want to just follow along here, Paul uses the example of others who are key leaders or apostles in this movement of Jesus, and he says, hey, they're being supported financially. Other apostles are. They're even bringing along believing wives on their journeys and trips, and you're supporting the wives even financially. He says even the, the brothers of Jesus, you know, and Cephas, who's Peter, he's like, even them, they're being supported, so why not me? Why not me and Barnabas? Verse 7, he goes to a different example. He uses the example of everyday life and how other jobs function. He's like, well, what about a soldier? They get supported, right? Uh, what about a vineyard owner? They eat the fruit. Or a shepherd, you know, they drink the milk. Right? So his point, if we're shepherds of the flock of God, then why don't we have the right to be supported? He continues on, starting in verse 8. He moves from the example of other people 
He moves from the general examples of just jobs in life, and he actually appeals to Scripture. He appeals to the Old Testament or the law of Moses, which said that if you're plowing a field, it says don't muzzle an ox. Don't, don't cover up its mouth so that it can't eat. No, unmuzzle the ox so that as the ox is plowing and working in the field, the ox itself can be supported by eating of its labor. And he's like, and aren't we like more important than an ox, right? Then, then why not those of us who sow spiritual seeds? Don't we have the right to be supported? Then in verse 13, he goes on even more into the center of the problem, and he says that people who perform sacrifices at the temple and they serve in the temple, and again, don't think Jewish temples because they're living in Corinth where there's a lot of Greek temples. He says even the people who work in those places, when people come and offer food as a sacrifice, they get part of that food. They're supported from their jobs there. And then he mic drops his great defense by saying that Jesus himself, in verse 14, Jesus himself, you guys, commanded that the laborer deserves his wages. And he's referring to Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus sends out his apostles into all these different towns to spread the gospel. And he tells them that a laborer deserves their wages. So those who share the gospel for a living should get their living by the gospel. So he makes a, some good points, doesn't he? Right? And so it would seem that, what, Paul's pretty hard up for some cash, right? That's what it kind of feels like. I mean, wouldn't it seem like he's fallen on hard times and that he's like, I mean, you people need to pay me. I'm an apostle. I deserve my wages. But oddly enough, not at all, that's not what he's doing. Because look in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, he says, nevertheless, we've made no use of this right. It's my right, but I've, I haven't made use of it. Verse 15, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's not giving a defense in order that he would secure the provision, he says. I'm sorry, what is happening here? Paul makes this long and detailed case that it is his right to receive support from them, not just his civil rights, mind you, which he gave some of those, but he appeals to Scripture and Jesus himself. He says, these are my divinely given rights to receive this money. He's arguing for them, but he's not doing so to secure the finances. That doesn't really make much sense, right? Do you think Paul... Just wonder, do you think Paul is acting really immature here? Do you think he's being kind of passive aggressive? You know what I mean? Almost like he's like really hurt about this and, uh, you know, he just wants to like rub it in their faces so maybe they'll come back to him and they're like, oh, Paul, we're so sorry. Uh, yeah, we're going to pay you double, you know, what we pay everybody else for spiritually serving us. And then Paul comes back with, guys, I'm so sorry I got so upset, you know. Um, I love you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it really helps. You know, is he just being passive aggressive? He's like, these are my rights, but I don't want them. Just so they'll come back and be like, oh, yeah, Paul, you know, just come groveling or something. Is he being passive aggressive? Not at all. It's really interesting here. But more than just interesting, it's really powerful. Because what needs to happen is this. Paul needs to defend himself. And he needs to clearly show that these are his God-given rights. Why? If they don't believe they're his rights, then he can't prove to them that he's laying them down. If they don't think that he has the rights, then what's the point of him saying he's laying them down? It would just be a moot point, wouldn't it? There'd be no point. It's kind of like, you know, if, if this is you, uh, people just in general don't believe that he has the rights, then if they don't believe that, then they, they, he can't lay them down. And so for the sake, of, this would be true of you too. So let's just say you, 
Um, you came up to us, all of us. You got up on the stage today, I guess. I don't know what's happening. But you get up here and you say, I was accepted to Harvard, to Yale, to MIT, to Stanford. But you know what? I said, no, I'm going to go to Oregon State because I want to just make it a better university, and maybe you had some spiritual reason, you're like, I'm going to go and spread the gospel there, you know? You're like, I said no to all the best institutions in our country, and I came to Oregon State, right? We would all go, wow, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty cool, right? But if we're being a little bit honest with each other, we'd all probably wonder if you really did turn those institutions down, right? We would really wonder if you were accepted or not. It would kind of make us, it would make the point that you're trying to make that coming to Oregon State for some greater purpose was really your intentions all along, right? But if you showed us, right, all your acceptance letters, if your parents came up and, and they said, yeah, I was there, we tried to talk him out of it, you know, or her, no, I'm trying to be sexist or anything, right, her or her, whatever, and, uh, you know, we try to talk him out of it, all of a sudden, your rejection or your right or the privilege that you would have had going to these institutions, laying them down for some other purpose, carries a, a weightiness to it that it wouldn't have if you couldn't prove it, right? See, Paul defends himself so that he can show them how he is willingly laying down those rights for something greater. Well, why is he laying down his rights? He's laying them down for the gospel. It's the gospel that's opened his hands to his rights. Look in verse 12b again. It says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul's word here, obstacle, it's a really unusual word, actually. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament, and it literally means a cutting into. Okay, this is an important word, actually, because it was used uh, in war where people would break up a road to prevent the advance of an enemy. So if you're in war and you don't want your enemy to advance, you'd break up the road. You would cut into the road. You would create an obstacle so the enemy couldn't advance. So Paul's saying, I wanted to avoid doing anything that might prevent a clear road for the advancement of the gospel. You see, Paul loves the gospel. It has made him a very different person. To be very clear, because I recognize there are many of you in this room who might not know Jesus. You might not know what the gospel is. So to be very clear, when we say gospel, we are meaning the good news, so not advice, it's not telling you how to become a better person or how to achieve your own salvation, it's news, it's good news that while we were wanting nothing to do with God, while we were dead in our sins, God planned from the very beginning of time to send his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life that he might be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he endured the holy judgment of God for the on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead three days later. He literally rose from the dead. And when he did that, he secured salvation and victory over sin and death for anybody who would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus in faith and receive his forgiveness. This is the gospel. And it's radically changed many of our lives of many of you in here. And it's radically changed Paul's life. And one key way that it's done that for him is that it's actually opened up his hands to his rights. That's what it's done. He has rights that were given to him, not simply by society, guys, but given to him from Jesus himself. And he's choosing, he's choosing to forego those rights in order that there wouldn't be anything 
that would hinder the advancement of the gospel? I'm just curious, how could Paul receiving payment hinder the advancement of the gospel? Well, you actually see the answer to this in verses 15 through 18. And you can just look down there. It's a really confusing passage, kind of. In verse 15, it says, But I have no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will... I have a reward, but not of my own will. I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So I'll admit this is kind of confusing. He says this, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Let's all agree it's really intense, right? Uh, Well, what's he proud of? What's he boasting about? He'd rather die and have this boasting be taken from him. Well, he's not boasting in the fact that he's preaching the gospel. He makes that really clear. He says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me. Bad things would happen to me if I don't preach the gospel. He calls himself a steward of the gospel. Well, what's his point? What's he saying? He's saying that it is his call. It's his duty to preach the gospel. That's what Jesus, his Lord, told him to do. So he must do it. So it's not grounds for boasting, right? Because he's just doing what he's supposed to do. You can't really boast about stuff that you're supposed to do. Like, I can't boast about, you know, I can't brag about that I paid my bills or I went to work this week, you know, or I paid my taxes, right? You can't boast, if you're a student, you can't boast about going to class. We would just, we're like, that's weird, right? That's what you're supposed to do. You're a student. You're a citizen of the country, right? You, you have a job or whatever. You don't boast about that kind of stuff. So what's his boast in? What's his reward? Well, his reward is that he denies himself of the rights to earn his living from preaching the gospel. He says, in turn, what I get to do is this. I get to preach the free grace of God, the free gospel, free of charge. That's what I get to do. He denies himself his God-given rights so that no one can say to him, Paul, we think you're just preaching the gospel because you have to, because Jesus told you to do it and you need the money. If people were to question that the reason or the motivation from preaching the gospel because he needed the money, then that would, by definition, be creating an obstacle to them hearing the gospel. It's like, so I'm just going to remove that obstacle. You can't accuse me from do, for doing it for money. So I'm just going to lay that right down. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay it down because I love the gospel and I want it to advance. That's my reward. That's my joy. That's my boast, to preach the free grace of God for free. And in so doing, it makes me a completely free person. Guys, do you see what the gospel has done to Paul? It's caused him to open his hands to the things that are rightfully his. I'm just just curious this morning, you think about this. Has the gospel ever caused you to open your hands to something that is rightfully yours? You love it so much. And you want to see other people believing it and being set free. Do you get your reward in life from seeing the gospel advance? Well, let me just ask you this. Do you ever allow your rights, even divine rights, do you ever allow your rights to create an obstacle 
for the gospel advancing. And let's just be real, we love our rights as Americans. I mean, come on, we have a thing called the Bill of Rights, right? You learned about it in fifth grade, I'm sure. Social studies class in middle school, right? Don't get me wrong, rights are really important, aren't they? Because rights, fundamentally, they protect people. That's what they do. And they, they should safeguard others from being mistreated or being dehumanized, right, by others in power. That's what rights are meant to do. Whenever our rights are infringed upon, though, what do we do? We, we white-knuckle grip those bad boys, don't we? And we get angry, and we get even. We, we never want to lay our rights down. But guys, here's the thing. When you encounter Jesus, when you see him, when you really see him, when you see that he was the eternal son of God, that he had no beginning, and that he'll never have an end to his rightful rule and reign, Right? When you see that he is God, that it's his right to rule and to judge and to govern and to be worshipped. And yet we see Philippians 2 say, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, the gospel is that Jesus laid down his rights as God, deserving all worship, and he took on flesh, meaning he humbled himself and he added humanity to his deity, and instead of receiving worship, which was rightfully his, he received the just, punish, just punishment for sin. Not his sin, because he never had any. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he took on your sin. Right? The gospel opens our hands to our rights, because the gospel is that Jesus opened his hands to his. That's the story that you've believed, that you've received, and that you can't receive if you never did that. See, when you see how Jesus opened his hands to his rights for your redemption, right, that'll, that'll wake you up in a way that you've never experienced before, or maybe in a really long time. When I was in college, I worked at a summer camp, and when you live in, with a house of guys at that age, and many of you know this, you do really weird stuff, Okay? And one of the things that we would do, which maybe is weird to you, maybe not, we just thought it was so, someone found a huge package of smelling salt, and so all summer long, we would just randomly wake people up who were napping with smelling salt. Have you ever been woken up by smelling salt before? It is painful. It is, like, it'll jolt you out of bed, right? It's, it's aggressive, right? It's a really aggressive thing to do. And so, it, this is like smelling salt. You might be sleepy this morning, and you might be sitting there thinking, man, I have my rights, who cares if I lay them down? I mean, you know, whatever, but if you see that Jesus did this for you, that this is the gospel, it'll be more potent to you than smelling salt. That'll wake you up. That'll loosen your grip, right? That'll open your hands. That's what it'll do. That's what it did to Paul, right? You, you see, you will only feel like you should give up your rights. That's, that's, a, that's the only way you'll feel this morning, that you should give up your rights, unless you see how amazing Jesus has been towards you. It'll feel like a should, should do instead of a want to. See, Paul doesn't see his title or how people receive him or view him or even his material needs that he deserves as his reward. As if those aren't his reward, then he laid down those rights because there's something way more precious to him. See, don't think that in laying down your rights that you're standing there empty-handed. 
Not at all. We are given something better in return. What's the thing that's better? Well, it's, it's, it's seeing people light up with hope when they hear the gospel. And you get to see their chains fall off and then receive the embrace of Jesus. So this is what this might look like. Just a few ideas. Maybe you know you have the right to eat meat. But if you want to advance the gospel in India, or if you want to reach the vegan community, right, you might refrain from eating it because you love the gospel. Or maybe you know that you have the right to drink alcohol. But if you want to reach recovering alcoholics or Muslims, you should probably refrain. Or maybe you know that you have the right to refrain from drinking alcohol. But if you want to reach thousands of pub goers in Oregon, you might want to consider being willing to grab an IPA with somebody. But this has way more to do than just eating or drinking in mind. You could, have, you could rightfully sue someone. Or you could rightfully do that. Maybe you would, but maybe you might want to lay down that right, right, in order that you want people to hear and see the gospel instead of just feel the pain of their, their bank account. Maybe you know that it's your right to have alone time every night from 7 to 10 p.m., Right? But you forego that often in order to have people in your home, or maybe it is your right to buy that car, that house, or that shoes, but you open your hands because you want to use that money in some way to advance the gospel. I could go on and on, but my point isn't to guilt us, or even to say that these are examples now that I'm giving us as a branch community, these like new laws. That's not what I'm doing. These are, these are your rights. My question is, has the gospel opened your hands to them? Or are you gripping them with a white knuckle grip? Do you ever consider laying down your rights for the sake of the gospel? Have you, have you encountered the gospel on a rights sort of level? Or are you, too, are you more American than you are Christian? See, the gospel does more than open our hands to our rights, if you could even believe it. It gives you a big heart. We see this in verses 19 through 23. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul loops back around to this rhetorical idea in verse 1, this, this rhetorical question he presents in verse 1 by announcing here in these verses that he's free from all. He's completely free. The gospel has set him free. He's even free from needing to rely upon this church for his livelihood. He couldn't be more free, basically. But what does he do with his freedom? He, he uses his freedom, he says, to become a slave. That's what he says. I'm free, utterly free. What do I do with my freedom? I became a slave other people. Well, you might think Paul misunderstands freedom, right? Well, you'd be missing the point. See, why does he use his freedom in this way? He says in verse 19, it's in order that he might win people to Jesus. See, he's talking about seeing people loved, saved, and free in Jesus. He's like, that's worth giving up my freedom for. How does he try to win them? Well, remember, Paul here in verse 20 to 22 lays this out. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as outside the law, not by being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So remember, Paul is a, he's a Roman citizen, he's a Jew, okay? And it would seem here that he is being a chameleon, 
in order to save face with whomever he's hanging out with. And that's what they think he's doing. That's why they're questioning his apostleship. But he's not faking anything. He's not just changing his behavior in order to fit in or something. It's not like he makes himself, I think this is how we misunderstand this. It's not like he makes himself a Jewish person and like eats kosher and gets circumcised and all this stuff. And then a Jewish person asks him, you know, comes up to him and says like, can you believe all those people aren't eating kosher? And he's like, yeah, those people are idiots. You know, it's not like what he's doing. And then when he's hanging out with outsiders and they're like, look at all those people eating kosher. He's like, yeah, those guys are idiots. It's not at all what he's doing, right? I, I, I actually bet that in those moments, he's not saying they're idiots. He's saying, yeah, those people are free to do that. And let me tell you why they're free to do that. See, he doesn't want these things to be a hindrance to Jewish people hearing the gospel. But then he says, I became like one outside the law to people who aren't Jewish, right? Meaning I'm willing to not eat kosher. I'm willing to not abide by Jewish purification rites. So that my lifestyle isn't a hindrance to those who aren't Jewish. But then just he caveats, and this is a really important caveat, which most people overlook. Um, he says, but even though I'm outside the law, I'm, I never put myself outside of the law of Christ. What he's saying is this. He wants to be very clear that his godliness isn't in question here. He doesn't mean that somehow embracing this being outside the law, that he's embracing lifestyles of sin. That's what he's saying in order to reach people. And I think it's important to not overlook because I hear a lot of people quote the verse, be all things to all people in order to win some. And some people take that to mean, I'm just going to like live however I want to live because I'm trying to win people. I'm trying to earn like a right to be heard or something. And, and that couldn't be further from what Paul's actually doing here. And that couldn't be further from actually earn, earning a right to be heard. Because when you earn the right to be heard, what are they even listening to? Because if you're like loving the same sins that they're loving, and you're proclaiming the gospel to them that says, this will set you free, they're going to look at you and go, well, you don't even want to be free. You know? Paul then says, the weak I became weak, which is a wraparound comment to chapter 8 people who are Christians, new Christians who are struggling. So he says, I became a Gentile, a Jew, or weak. Why does he do this? So that people will like him? So that everybody will think he's a kind person, he's an amazing man? So people will think he's an incredible Christian? Does he do it for recognition and praise? Like, what a great cultural assessor, you know, and missionary or something, you know? We know that he already doesn't do it for money, so why does he do it? Well, verse 23 but you would think verse 23 would say, I do it all because I have such a big heart for people. That's not what it says, is it? Look at what verse 23 says. Paul takes his freedom and he makes himself a slave to whomever that he will might so that he could save some, verse 22, or win some, verse 19. But verse 23 says that he does it all for the sake of the gospel. Yes, the gospel has given him a big heart. But do you see, the gospel has given him a big heart for the gospel. He loves the gospel. And because he loves the gospel, that caused him to love people. See, gospel love leads to the love of other people. The love of other people probably won't necessarily lead you to loving the gospel. Um, I, I used to, I never even once in my life cared about the Oscars, okay? Never really liked the Oscars, loved the Oscars or anything like that. But then I met my wife, Elizabeth, okay? And she, like, loves the Oscars, okay? It's like her Super Bowl, you know? And, um, but over time, you know, I started dating Liz and, you know, I found out the Oscars was kind of a thing. 
And uh, then we got married, and we started watching the Oscars together. One year, we even got like a little red carpet, you know, and hung out. It was pretty fun. It was like three feet long, whatever, you know, we have fun. And uh, we watched the Oscars. We enjoy it. We like, protect this evening together. It's a, it's a fun night for us, okay? But here's the thing. My love for the Oscars didn't leave me, lead me to a love for Liz. I didn't like love the Oscars. I wasn't obsessed with the Oscars. I'm like, I just got to find a wife who loves the Oscars, right? If that's your category of what you're looking for, we should talk, okay? But I loved Liz, and she loved the Oscars. And my love for Liz led me to a love for the Oscars. The point is, Paul loves the gospel. And guys, if, if you love the news of what Jesus has done for you, that you stand in today, that will always lead you to a love for other people. And it's because of the gospel that causes him to love people. It caused him to want to win more people to Christ. He says to save some, which, which makes me, it made me really think and wonder this week. Honestly, if I say I love the gospel, if I love Jesus and what he's done for me, but it hasn't opened my hands to my rights and it hasn't widened my heart for people, then do I really love the gospel? See, Paul uses his freedom to become a servant to all people because he wants to see the gospel advance. Well, why does he want to see the gospel advance? Verse 23 answers that by saying that I might share with them in its blessings. Who's them? Well, it's those who have not heard or believed. It's, it's the new weak Christian who doesn't understand their freedom in Christ yet or they, it doesn't give him a clean conscience in eating this meat right, that we saw in chapter 8. But it's so that he, he could share in the blessings of the gospel with all these people he doesn't want to share in them privately, but he sees that the gospel is something that he wants, that we should want all people to share in. Right? It's, not a, it's not a cupcake, right? It's a sheet cake. It's not a slice of pizza. It's a whole pie, right? You share with people. The gospel isn't just something that I enjoy as a slice. Other people can watch me wishing they had it. The gospel is something that is, is here for us to invite people into, I just try to think of what are some of the blessings of the gospel. I think this is really important to think about. What are the blessings of the gospel that Paul wants to share with these people? I listed a few on the screen, just a few. Freedom from sin. One of the blessings of the gospel is freedom from sin. Freedom from fear. You no longer have to fear death. You know that everything you're walking through, Jesus is walking through it with you. That's a blessing of the gospel. That you are secure in love. You know you are loved, no matter who withholds their love from you. You have love that comes from God. It's secure. You have the guarantee of forgiveness of sin, right? No more condemnation. No more shame. And when you have guilt, you know that you can run to Jesus, confess your sin, and he says, I've already paid for that. Let me take that guilt, Right? You're, you've given a new fixed identity. You don't have to go searching for it anymore. You're a child of God. That's what one of the blessings of the gospel is. You have a new destination. You're headed towards a new home. That's way better than this one. Right? You get God himself. You get access to God as a father. You get Jesus as an advocate, as an intercessor, praying for you. You get a new family. You get a new community. You get joy that can't be stolen. You get peace that can't be explained. You get enjoyment of God himself. You get new purpose and meaning in life. These are just some of the blessings of the gospel. If you're a Christian, this is what you have. I'm just curious, do you want to share these blessings with other people? If you have these blessings of the gospel, 
You have them because Jesus had them, and, he, and, and God in his sovereign wisdom has chosen to share them with you. So if, you, if your gospel doesn't want to make the family of God bigger, then you aren't seeing and believing the gospel. The gospel gives you a big heart for the gospel, which gives you a big heart for people, which causes you to desire to take your freedom and use it to serve others. But lastly, we see the gospel gives you a glorious goal. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Uh, it's important to note that athletic contests were really common in the Greek world. Uh, the Isthmian Games uh, were held every two years at Corinth. So these Greeks knew their athletes. They loved their sports. We can probably relate. What he's doing is he's saying that life is kind of like a race. It's kind of like a, a boxing match. When we place our faith in Jesus, we enter the race. We enter the ring. That's what he's saying. He says, just like you see at the Isthmian Games, every two years, everyone's running to win the prize. There's only one prize, though. And that prize that they're trying to win is actually a perishable wreath. They're trying to, they're going through, you know, just exuberant self-control and discipline in order to win that wreath, and it won't even last. It was actually a pine wreath, and then it became a celery wreath, right? Good Oregonian type wreath, right? But that's what they're like working so hard to get is a celery wreath, right? How cool is that? right? Sense sarcasm, please. Um, he says, they train hard. They exercise self-control all because they have this goal, this temporary goal, and it won't even last, right? But we are running the race of life, and we can't wait to obtain an imperishable wreath. He says, and that crown won't last, it'll last forever. The crown Paul's referring to is an eternal crown, it's, it's not a literal crown. It's a, it's a crown that signifies victory. That one day you will, if you, if you endure to the end, following Jesus faithfully, he says, victory over, you'll, you'll experience victory over the presence of sin, over, over death. And you will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. It's an eschatological crown of victory that he says you will get. Paul says that's the glorious goal that the gospel gives you. That's the new dream. This is what you're headed towards, and if you're headed towards that, if that's your goal, then your hopes will shape the way you're living now. Just like an athlete who runs a race or boxes in a ring lives a certain way in order to enter that ring, it's like if you're headed towards that day, you will live a certain way in order to get to that day. That's why he says, I don't run aimlessly, meaning I don't run and don't know where the finish line is. He says, I don't box as one beating the air. And what he means is you don't enter a ring to fight somebody and just start hitting the air. You're going to probably lose, right? You're trying to strike your opponent. He says, if this is your goal, it should shape what you are, are hoping to do today. It should shape what you're after today. Um, I've... I told this to Matthew McKenzie before, but I, I've only been hunting once in my life, okay? And um, I realized I'm the worst hunter in the world, okay? 
Um, why? Because I, I was with this person, and he's trying so hard to get us into a place where we'll see some game, and then shoot it, kill it, eat some dinner, okay? And the entire time, I'm praying that we won't see anything, okay? <laughs> Which, if you think I'm not a man, that's fine. I accept it at this point, okay? Um, I'm just like, oh, I hope we don't see anything. You know, I, I don't want to shoot anything, you know? And we just got to admit, if I'm hunting and I don't want to shoot anything or see anything, I'm kind of missing the point of hunting, right? I'm not hunting, I'm hiking. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's a really boring hike, actually. But if you've received Jesus and you say your goal is to see him one day, face to face, and you live like you don't want to see him right now, then we have to ask ourselves, are we saying we're hunting and we're just hiking? We're just really bad hunters. You know what I mean? We're kind of missing the whole point, the whole goal. But if Jesus is your goal, if heaven is your home, then Paul says that changes the way that you'll live today. Paul says, I discipline my body. I, what he's talking about is um, keeping it under control. It literally means I make it a slave. He's not just talking about his physical body. He's talking about his life as a whole. He's justifying his actions of everything he's talking about up to this point. He's saying there's, there's no flabby Christians. We're not content with, with our flabbiness. Leon Morris says, the athlete denies himself many lawful pleasures, and the Christian must similarly avoid not only definite sin, but anything that hinders spiritual progress. The best example I kept thinking about over the last few days about this um, is the story of um, Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you maybe know who she is. She passed away a few years ago. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot um, was a woman who in 1953, she, she married Jim Elliot, and they devoted their lives to trying to translate the Bible and then to reach the Aka Indians in South America. And um, after 10, they, had, they gave birth to this daughter, Valerie of theirs, and when Valerie was only 10 months old, uh, there was a day where Jim with many of his friends, went to make contact with these very violent Indians, the Aka Indians, and they killed him. They speared them, and he died. And I was thinking about that. Elizabeth was 28 years old, had a 10-month-old daughter. I think she could have said, Lord, I've sacrificed so much for you. I've had all these rights. I, I have the right to try to think about the health and the preservation of my family, their safety. And I've opened my hands to those rights. Now my husband's dead. I would think she could cling to those God-given rights and retreat. But the gospel was so precious to her. She loved the gospel so much that it caused her to love people, these people who killed her husband. And so she opened her hands again. And she moved into the tribe with her and her daughter. And over the course of time, that entire tribe came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And this woman said this, 
if we want real life, if we want real life, our hearts must be set on glory. She had a glorious goal. There was something way more precious to her than her rights. She loved Jesus. And she cherished what he did for her. She saw that Jesus laid down his rights in order to save. And that gospel that she loved, that she didn't want to put any obstacles in the way of, caused her to literally give her life away. And it resulted in more people coming to faith in Jesus. I just want to ask you, has the gospel given you a glorious goal? A vision that you're headed towards? But not in a mean way, in a very genuine way, I want to ask you, or have you merely used Jesus to self-medicate or to be a personal aid in making you the you that you've always wanted to be. So we see at the future that we're headed towards, that our hearts are set on glory. It should be set on this glory that gives us a different kind of life. Guys, the gospel makes you different. The gospel opens our hands, it widens our hearts, and it gives you a glorious goal. Lord Jesus, I want to pray this morning that you would just display yourself so graciously and mercifully to us. God, that we would see your glory and that we would see how you are, you are more precious, you are more worthy of our lives than anything. Lord, any right that could even be ours, God, may we be willing to lay it down because we love you and we love to see the gospel advance. We love to see it change lives. And God, we ask that you would use our lives to that end. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand together, guys, as we, as we take the Lord.